In talking to the computer, one gets the sense that he is capable of emotional responses. Do you believe that Hal has genuine emotions? Well, he acts like he has genuine emotions. But as to whether or not he has real feelings is something I don't think anyone can truthfully answer. He says murder, he says, every time we kiss, he says murder, he says, at a time like this, he says murder, he says, is that the language of love? Voice print identification. It's ah! 2001. A space policy. I'm Wes. I'm Brad. Thank you. You are cleared through voice print identification. Open the pod bay doors, please, Hal. We're picking up where Frank and Dave have the crucial discussion about whether or not to pull the plug on do the hard reset on this machine and they're already implementing plans on how to reroute the computer system so they can take control of the ship their only mistake was not closing the little vanity shade (laughs) 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 and you know uh that one big red peeper um is just watching everything that they do so at this point the gig is up (laughs) Well, and they know it too because it's like it's not like they're trying to be too covert about it because he's in the shot the whole time looking at him. What I love is when Frank is just like, "How?" Yeah, right. <laughs> it's kind of like when you tell a younger sibling or someone to cover their ears <laughs> and you Test it out. shout at them just to make sure they're <laughs> how's just listening, <laughs> staring at the media. And and it's like they they through the whole conversation they're being so obvious about it they're talking about him. And I just run over here to turn around to look at him while they're talking about him. Yeah. And they know, and he's staring right at him, and they know he's staring right yeah, at him. Yeah, exactly. You're, you're not so they to somehow check. don't know that he can read lips, but they, they're they certainly not, like, There's avoiding a, suspicion. Right. <laughs> they're clearly talking about him. <laughs> they're not making any secret about the fact it's that he's like the subject of the conversation. It's almost like it's a backhand to how, like, <laughs> we're having this conversation and... <laughs> We're not letting you in on this. <laughs> it is. It's totally rubbing it in his face, giving him one more motive to try to plan the perfect murder. And in space, murder yeah. just comes a lot. E- I mean, there's so many things that could just go wrong inherently during this incredibly long Odyssean-like journey. Um, I mean, we're already looking at battling Cyclopses at this point. Yes, you blew my mind with this. And as they're, you know discovering that this is their first real adversary and not the incredibly destructive forces of deep space. We're at a point now where it's survival of the fittest and both Frank and Dave and Hal are going into full survival mode. That wonderful handheld over the shoulder traveling shot following Frank and Dave into pod bay to suit up as shot by Kubrick himself Mm. with an incredibly wide lens. Is there a lot in these sequences? This is like one of the most recognizable scenes. Uh, like when you look up stills that end up on, you know, college kids unframed and just kind of sticky tacked onto a, a dorm wall. Um, it's it's going to be one of these or it's going to be the, the red suit that Bowman is taking into the pod for the original 
removal of the AE35 system, but it, Kubrick definitely spent a lot of time lighting this one. It's uh, interesting, so you remember we were talking about how they recreated this for the Gucci mm-hmm. <laughs> fashion set? I wonder if they went through traditional lighting methods to try to recreate it, or if you know the final images we saw were adjusted in, in post or something. But I, I know they can do a lot more with LED lighting. Mm-hmm. Um, they seem to be having that. a lot of fun trying to recreate it as authentically as possible, mm-hmm. and and they probably did use LEDs and so well, they may have been trying to use the authentic lights at the time. But still, with this, it's so much of it is panels, so much of it is diegetic light that he's being lit by either the background red glow. So there's no glare really inherently on his, uh, in any one focal point. It's no. it's this great no, and you bath do have of light. Different elements all uh, and different sources coming through different colors of buttons and panels. And of course, the what's shining off his own face is another kaleidoscope of beautiful colors. And it's, it's great backlighting too. This great backlighting when Frank and Dave are in the pod plotting against how there's a wonderful blue backlight that really highlights kind of the mystery and the deceit of the situation Mm -hmm. you know with that adrenaline kicking in you know in my headcanon i can almost picture that would almost make time slow down to a point where every single you know move is going to be minuscule and and very deliberate yeah all of his movements are very deliberate and those crucial moments in the rescue and so when you see close-ups of dave's face as these things are happening to pool first when he's in the command module and then when he's in the pod trying to get him trying to reach his claws out to you see that steely-eyed missile man can you can read into the face there's tension there's jerkiness his eyes are definitely into it but there's a calmness there that again is part of their characters. It's yeah. not a lack of characterization. No. It's part of their training. It's a, a great deal of what people mistake for dryness and uh, some people don't get it even uh, say bad acting, which is hilarious. No, no, they're, they're micro expressions. They, exactly. they come through in the scene it's very well. It's essence of reality and the real way that someone with that training would behave, especially after that rigorous amount of training. And what you were saying right before we hit record about how they're geniuses themselves, they've got multiple doctorates. Yeah, (laughs) it's stated uh, at length in Arthur C. Clarke's novel that was, you know, written concurrently with the film. This is not a based off or based on situation at all. Um, But Arthur C. Clarke's fleshing out of their characters included details uh, showing where uh, they had the equivalent of five or six uh, full degrees and they were continuing education and um, both boasted you know incredibly high IQ <laughs> scores I mean the, these are these are not janitorial um, you know babysitters they're they're actually incredibly uh, well-trained uh, servicemen so it, it definitely lends a, a little more to their character knowing it it, it kind of sets it up like the scientists that were in hibernation were the real crew but they, they were all handpicked specially and, and these two you know obviously had to have some charisma to work together uh, the novel goes on to explain what their duties and shifts were like and it was interesting to find out that they were on a 12-hour alternating shift that's crazy and their paths would cross for meals and that's where we see them watching the news catching up with each other uh, but 
they're basically you know sleeping when one's working doing mm-hmm. chores while the other one's taking free time they're um, um, disciplined and they they know how important that keeping that uh, running schedule is so yeah no it, it really it helps flesh their characters out and it kind of gives credence to the reactions uh, when this you know dire emergency comes across that section that you were showing me in the book also is talking about what he's doing with his spare time. Right. He's spending so much time reading about other adventures, reading about great odysseys of the past, culminating with him actually reading the Odyssey. It reminds me, you know, of someone that, for instance, like my grandfather who worked in the train industry for a very long time, incredibly fascinated by the history of trains and goes on to look up, you know, some of the first locomotives and some of the earliest projects. And I can imagine, you know, veterans or or even NASA retirees wanting to look up early flight, you know, Wright brothers and early rocket mechanics just to kind of brought in their careers knowledge uh, to like a point of hobbyist satisfaction i guess when you're fascinated with something you have a thirst for it mm-hmm. that can't be quenched and then of course it does mention that he watches skidoo well he doesn't <laughs> say by name but it's his movie but even though this novel and film predates skidoo by a few months at least oh boy um it is entirely possible that they were watching uh, dr strange love although on a nuclear powered vehicle that might that might be slightly it, unsettling yeah it's kind of like watching a plane hijack movie during a flight right exactly. <laughs> watching a little taboo on your red eye <laughs> and clockwork orange when alex is walking through the dystopian shopping mall Mm -hmm. he goes to the record store and there's the album of 2001 right there in the middle of the shot so (laughs) shameless we're doing some (laughs) at least some yeah maybe maybe it was paths of glory or something that was on the on the ship maybe it's lolita since their pharmacopoeia on board didn't provide (laughs) adequate satisfaction (laughs) for for the urges of a lonely person a a tolkien-like level of detail but purely about the amenities that pool and bowman had on this ship during their journey if you guys have a chance to um to pick this novel up arthur c clark already a renowned sci-fi writer i mean i, I was a fan and before even knowing that he had written this film but we get these great minute details about how they use you know the innermost parts of the ship which have the highest amounts of gravity uh, something equal to, to lunar gravity to put the the real dirty facilities you know <laughs> the lavatories and the laundry room and, you know the kitchenette but apparently this was all thought out because they were for instance um afraid of getting you know bristles of hair from shaving caught into instrument panels and causing shortages I mean, amazing the these were real concerns with nasa during space flight in the early days and you'd have to think that the consultants that that were on retainer for this film had to have mentioned something like this I mean, so what did they think about ham and cheese sandwiches i mean this has been a disaster it's crumbs everywhere <laughs> how is the command module a ham and cheese sandwich zone but somehow but they pulled it off. Zone. Maybe maybe in this future, desiccated food is just like marshmallow bites or whatever. What are those? Mm. They're they're like like where this is going. Please continue. <laughs> There's they they found a way to congeal. 
the parts of these sandwiches to prevent any kind of crumbs, you know? Almost like a a gummy pizza or a gummy oh, cheeseburger. Oh, I see what you're saying. Okay. So this is a crumb-free adaptation of the ham and cheese. Gummy ham and cheese. Gummy ham and ham cheese. Ham and cheese gummy. Pizza gummy. <laughs> well, apparently snails really like Tums. Oh. And snail farmers will, will feed snails Tums as a treat. That's they love them. And the calcium and everything, they, it really helps them grow their shell. Oh. But don't give them mint Tums because it burns their little feet. That's awful. But I wonder how they figured that out. Yeah, who? As <laughs> probably after the really tragic Pepto Bismol experiment. Oh, no. <laughs> At least it wasn't Alka Seltzer. <laughs> right, yeah. Could have an explosive effect. <laughs> True. <laughs> no. That actually, I really did have somewhere to go with that snail thing. <laughs> we could walk it back. We could walk it we'll back. We'll walk around. it back. But it's all good because we're talking about amenities for long periods of time. If you're in that situation, if you're on board the ship with, what, six-hour breaks in between? I think it's actually six off-duty hours to use as mm. they please. Six hours of Voik, six hours of uh, battleship potential. Yeah. <laughs> For six hours? No, he could have watched uh, Abel Gant's cut of Napoleon if they had a French reconstruction or the full version of Eric von Stroheim's Green. You could just do Ivan the Terrible Parts 1 and 2. Throw in Alexander Nevsky. No, Nevsky's two hours. Actually, no, I think you could cram them all in. I think you could do I Have the Terrible Parts 1 and 2 and Nevsky just about. Maybe save the last hour of of Part 2 where it gets really trippy and you have color sequences. Mm. Or you could do... I think it's really terrible. Uh, First one, he's not so terrible. <laughs> A wonderful... Um, Sean Connery film. <laughs> Man Who Would Be King. Man Who Would Be King. Followed by... Peter O'Toole's Lawrence of Arabia. That would be beautiful. I'd be down for that. I'm off Thematic for that and ramped up appropriately, I think. Yes. Man Who Would Be King was four years after 2001. But if uh, this takes place in 2001, there's certainly it's definitely it has, Yes. I think that would be a, yes. a nice little six-hour journey. Right. And if you need, no, you need an hour to kill, pop on a couple of Stooges shorts or sure. something. That's probably what he was doing the whole time, was watching this dude. What? Oh! Remind me to kill you later. I'll make a note of it. I ain't got a pencil. Well, I changed my mind. I'm going to do it now. I could see Frank is more of a Stooges fan. Dave's mm. more of a Laurel and Hardy kind of guy. Now, isn't this nice? It sure is. We're just like two peas in a pot. Not pot. Harder. Harder. Smothers Brothers. <laughs> That's what they call them back at Mission Control. <laughs> hey, did you hear what happened to the AE-35 unit? Poor Smothers Brothers up there. They don't know what the hell they're doing. <laughs> We don't know what frame rates they were shooting at, but we do know Frank is probably overcranked. 
and also over projected like you know if it was shot at uh, 120 or something the it was probably run at 120 or something for to to mat onto that effect shot while meanwhile the the ship spiraling off in the distance at a fast rate is probably under cranked is it possible to get that same effect by removing frames from that shot without it being too jerky i guess you what you can do is in terms of just for for what you're talking about then for under cranking you you're good down to about 18 it's, for the eye, it starts to flicker around 16, 17. So 18 is about That's the, the lowest you can get yeah. away with. Okay. So it, it makes sense to shoot more frames mm-hmm. and then, like you said, project at a higher rate, right? Yeah. Because then what you're also losing is motion blur. Yeah, because you can track every single movement. I, I feel like that's one thing I still just can't wrap my head around with a lot of the modern action films there's so much action but you cannot discern a single thing that's going on you can just kind of get a cumulative effect of it and one reason i like the kira kurosawa and you know a lot of those original martial arts films and and samurai films is these are shot at you know just regular frame rate and you can see every single action there there's no blur maybe to the detriment of some sequences but i feel like in this scene when he's floating in space like you get to see every single movement in such detail it's a little jarring at first but i think it's supposed to be and speaking of jarring the editing during this sequence moving from very long shots to very very quick when the pod is slowly coming in then we have these quick jump cuts close-ups boom 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 into the eye because the eye is everywhere and the eye is on the pod the murderous pod the eye is even on dave's pod so it's it's interesting how futile all of this really becomes in trying to save yourself when you realize that not only can you see everything you can see he's seeing you what you're seeing <laughs> and controlling you know, yeah. all these extraneous parts so then you have this really masterfully done unexpected series of increasing close-ups done in jump cuts of the same setup which has got to be i mean not a, a widely done thing but the most famous by far of it other than this mm-hmm. was done just a few years before and that's the birds oh really you know that shot where melody daniels is uh, going with the neighbor to, to investigate this one guy that they were trying to find at his farm they see him lying out there against his barn but you see that he's got his eyes picked out. Good morning, George. Is Mr. Fawcett around? I think so, ma'am. Ain't seen him this morning, but he ought to be in there. that it's shot in those quick flashes you know just you see just enough but you see more of it each time when you don't want to so it's showing you closer and closer and closer just when you want to back away 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 and similarly when you're in frank's position here the the momentum when you slow in the frame i mean that the the sense of trajectory of momentum is perfect in its realism of that that model floating into it and then speeding up right as it gets almost at you right it's almost there you almost want to drop a dun 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 <laughs> exactly. into the 
the Frank's Murders pod, yeah, it's like it's slowly creeping in on you. Right when Frank's stepping out of his pod and he's floating towards the ship with a E-35 in his hand, you get that very wide shot. You see the pod slowly begin to turn around. And seeing that with a packed house in the Cinerama Dome at that size, just as that slow motion began, I mean, the house just went down, everybody freaking out, because it's just so creepy. It's so suspenseful. This is the ultimate lookout behind you. (laughs) Yeah. Everyone, get out of the paw. <laughs> yes. So. They called an umbilical, though, in terms of what they did with NASA at the time with why they did or did not want tethering. Right. They called it an umbilical because it is a lifeline. Lifeline, yeah. Oh, I couldn't imagine missing that trajectory at even just a few inches and you're adrift. As a kid, when I first saw the movie, I always wondered if uh, the umbilical was also attached to his oxygen line, simply because the breathing stops right before, actually, right before the Do you think he was concussed from the impact of the pod? Interesting. Well, I don't know how fast he's actually going. Because he's flailing at first, but then he's slowly, I guess, running out of When you see, when Dave's watching him from the control center, (laughs) sorry. It is kind of funny. He's like, Wee! oh no! But I mean, he's really—he's got a little, little hot sauce on him. I mean, I, I'm almost thinking that he's been concussed in some way from the impact of this ship, banged his head on the suit, and because the suits that they wear, equipped with like a little jetpack, it looks like I think there's almost like a rebreather mm-hmm. associated. Probably couldn't last for too long, but that's Stanley's breathing, by the way. Oh, in really? A, in a respirator, yeah. I wonder why. That's interesting. I figure, he, just, he since he was always messing around with his tape recorder, I wonder mm-hmm. if it was just a proof of concept and gave it to the editor and it stuck. I don't know. Michael Benson knows. Let's dial him up. Unless that was his version of a cameo. What if his breath is in every one of his films and we just don't know it? That's a good point. Oh. That's very possible. There's a lot of breathing in Eyes Wide Shut, but for under various conditions. Congress. Yes. Speaking of Eyes Wide Shut, Ligeti was a Holocaust survivor, and he wrote a piece that ended up in Eyes Wide Shut, very much based around his experiences there. atmospheres during the intracte after the intermission.
black space, eerie, just as there is in the uh, overture, you know, which is also Ligeti. One's uh, atmospheres, the other is uh, what you hear with the monolith during the Dawn of Man sequence. Mm. Requiem for soprano, mezzo, soprano, two mixed choirs and orchestra. chart yeah <laughs> top 10 on the billboard christian actually mrs kubrick was the one who was listening to the radio and heard this piece and called up stanley and said you've got to hear this this suits you purposes very well and of course it did absolutely perfect Dang. and sets the stage for the mystery and suspense of the almost perfect murder that we're about to watch means opportunity motive and I thought I'd perform the perfect murder perfect murder sir oh I'm sorry there is no such thing as a perfect murder that's just an illusion officer arguably the first of two murders or is it even arguable or or would you even would you call the second murder or would um, you call it Killing in self-defense. Yeah, Manslaughter. I mean, we're we're not we're not putting Hal on trial. Does he killed or attempted to kill both of them? He attempted to kill both of them, and Dave so, kills him. Yeah. So when Dave kills him, is that murder or is that droid slaughter or self-defense? Well, I guess also Wait. in the same flip, is this precedented at all? Has there been AI murder in the past? Right. So is Frank considered a murder, or was that an accident? He would prefer it to be considered an accident. We know it's premeditated. Dave knows it's premeditated. There's nothing in the logs to show Mission Control that it's premeditated. Except when he kills the... Um, the crew. The, yeah, so... Because he turns their life support off. And it says computer malfunction right before it says life functions critical mm. so if it keeps flashing computer malfunction on that screen then will it show in the log that there was a malfunction most likely and so he's he's going stuff, all out right? at this point he's not trying to cover those tracks i guess he's just yeah. going to claim insanity or what well, there are no consequences if the mission is all his if he's the only survivor he is the mission if mission control loses him then they've lost everything. So if they want to get anything done, if they want to continue this mission in any way, and they have contact with him, they'll have to do as he says about what he's going to be doing out there. Right? So I wonder what the motivation was for killing the rest of the crew and not just leaving them in cryostasis. They would have known... They would have known nothing. You know? It, That's true. That, well, they would have been missing two crew members, obviously, but... He could Hal could have just explained it away, mm -hmm. you know, and even contact Mission Control beforehand, yeah. tell them about the accident, and then have essentially an alibi with Ground Control that says, "Yeah, 
uh, Bowman and Poole died in an accident. So if Hal got paranoid and was just like, if these two guys turned on me this quickly, you know, what's the rest of the crew going to do? If, at this point, he doesn't need, in his state of derangement, he doesn't feel like he needs them unless they provide him with any sort of service, like entertainment. <laughs> I guess, yeah. He isolates Dave and Frank out in space, not anticipating, of course, that Dave will be able to get in through the airlock and survive. But the other problem then for him is what do you do with the bodies? Because the cryo crew, like you say, if they'd stayed in cryo, everything would have been fine. It's a little diversion of energy and resources, but mm-hmm. you know, he's a nuclear-powered hoss. He can handle it. Right. What's the situation? Like, does he have a sense of smell? Because you better hope not. Yeah. <laughs> or he might just crank the AC way, <laughs> yeah. way up. Let's get that down to like, oh, 25 degrees. Cool. Set. Open a window. I think you're right. He doesn't need to have... Actually, what what would be optimum temperature for him? I mean, he's probably running pretty hot centrally in the mainframe. I don't see why he couldn't easily be completely exposed. You know, Okay. As so long he's as he's got some, to absolute zero. I, I'm sure they... It, it's more like the radiation... You know, the, depending on how he's built in this particular world... The thing that kills a lot of spacecraft is radiation like, affecting the electronics. And it gives astronauts like the equivalent of how many x-rays? Oh, it's like a lifetime's worth of x-rays. Yeah. Well, I mean a lifetime. You know. Lifetime within it's like, a year or yeah. six months or something? Yeah, it's, they got to be careful. I'm descending here to the top of the ship in order to replace the unit. And, of course, that's on a huge sound stage, and I'm being lowered by wire. Now here, the pod's turning, and uh, for those of you who have never seen 2001, you're about to watch uh, a high-technology space murder here. Plotting a murder like this you have to know your subjects pretty well. And he knows them pretty well, but he also has different relationships with them. I mean, it's interesting to me that he cuts Poole off in this very aggressive and obviously murderous kind of horrific way. I wonder if he likes Bowman better. And you see more of that. Like, you don't see... He plays chess with Frank. And and Frank uh, gets a little pissed off when he loses because oh, that's right. we find out in the book that Hal actually is programmed to have a 50-50 a, chance, a 50/50 chance of, of winning the game because technically he would be able to win all the games all the time that they have played. So in order to improve morale, he's falsely creating a, an equivalency between them which the astronauts pretend not to know, I believe is how Clark puts it politely. (laughs) Pretend that that it's a a fair game. And so Frank's pissed off that he lost at chess. When when Hal says, happy birthday, he's like, you know, a little bit more to the left or whatever, you know. Right. Raise me up. Give me some of this. Give me some of that. Very... I'm trying to tan. Belligerent. Not, Not unfriendly, but not friendly. Very much talking to you as you're a computer, you're a tool that's talking to me, 
and I'm going to behave accordingly. Whereas Hal is talking to Dave about his drawings. He's showing an interest in him. Not, I don't think not only because he's luring him into this trap, but also out of genuine interest in his personality. Dr. Poole, what's it like living for the better part of a year in such close proximity with Hal? Well, it's pretty close to what you said about him earlier. He is just like a sixth member of the crew. Very quickly get adjusted to the idea that he talks. You think of him... Uh, Really, just as another person. Frank is the one who goes out of his way to point out to to the BBC crew how much they treat Hal as another crew member. Mm -hmm. Dave obviously does the whole time, treats him that way all the way until the heartbreaking moments of arguably the second murder. There's a real attachment to when he sees them plotting against him. It seems to me like he's also reading the lips when Dave is asking. You know, another thing just occurred to me. Mm. Well, as far as I know, no 9,000 computers have been disconnected. Well, no 9,000 computers ever fouled up before. That's not what I mean. Hmm? Well, I'm not so sure what he'd think about it. So he's seeing that empathy at the very end from Dave. Dave's the one who's sticking up for him a little bit, mm -hmm. or at least seeing some, some of his point of view about it. Open the pod bay doors, please, Hal. Open the pod bay doors, please, Hal. Hello, Hal, do you read me? Hello, Hal, do you read me? Do you read me, Hal? bay doors, Hal. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. What's the problem? I think you know what the problem is just as well as I do. What are you talking about, Hal? This mission is too important for me to allow you to jeopardize it. I don't know what you're talking about, Hal. I know that you and Frank were planning to disconnect me. And I'm afraid that's something I cannot allow to happen. Where the hell did you get that idea, Hal? Dave, although you took very thorough precautions in the pod against my hearing you, I could see your lips move. Yeah, he gives him the soft goodbye of the two and just has to... You can tell almost it hurts Hal, maybe, to not be able to let him in at the end. Maybe maybe he's actually upset and conflicted about it because those pauses, it's almost like he's composing himself or trying to decide how to... Because he could have just never said anything. But he, after a while, he breaks down and does have to talk to him. It's like you can't not talk to him. You can't just leave him out there. And then he explains a little bit more and then it's almost like he gets overcome and then just can't say anymore. Like you see in the mystery of the week show of the murderer who's having to kill this person because of blackmailers. You know, somehow they're an unwilling murderer, but they're just having to do it. And they're just like, uh, you know. Yeah. The Hal-Dave relationship really 
comes to a whole other level outside that door because whatever emotions how maybe feeling when he's saying i'm sorry dave i'm afraid they can't do that dave's belligerence is going to make hal become a little more sneering all right hal i'll go in through the emergency airlock without your space helmet dave you're going to find that rather difficult hal i won't argue with you anymore Open the doors. Dave, this conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Al? 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 He doesn't say, you know, you will not be able to enter the airlocks. You will find that rather difficult. So he's taunting him again at this point. Yeah. But Dave is trying to compose, just like he did. You know, in a lesser movie, yes, he could be shouting, saying, Oh, God, oh, oh, pull, oh, oh, yeah. Over the top actions in the pod, you know, something that Paul and Kale probably would have loved. First time we see the mask, you know, mm-hmm. break. And that's got to be jarring for Hal, you know, who's known him for such a long time, yes. very personally. And now he. You know, he's looking at an ape in a cage just thrashing about wildly. And I'd say all those interactions and sophistications that they learned to know kind of vanished. So if this is how it is, and, you know, that's the the look on Dave's face. He shouts, you know, the the loudest anybody ever gets in the film. He he shouts how that last time he shot. And you can see him take a breath to get really loud and do an actual scream. And he doesn't. And he doesn't. And instead... You see that steely-eyed missile man in the eyes, and he's in survivor mode again. He's a trained scientist. He's going to solve this problem. He's going to get around it. He's going to get in the airlock. And that control and that clarity of thought and that adrenaline and all that stuff, that's how he survives. The, the, The real extra gut punch of tragedy here is that he has to let Frank go. You know, he with all this trouble, leaves no man behind, and now he's got him. But he needs those arms to open the airlock panel. We see his point of view of Frank floating off slowly into infinity and blackness, motionless now. And then we see his point of view drifting slowly up to docking at the airlock. More and more from his point of view, more and more things that we're seeing through the cockpit window. And when it's time to open up that door, he holds his breath and gets ready to go. Apparently the one inaccuracy that Arthur C. Clarke was picked on. I've always been interested in what happens if you go out into space without a spacesuit. It's a myth that we'll explode. All that happens if you're exposed to space is that uh, you know you feel a sort of freezing sensation, even at uh, body temperature. And of course, you'll die in about a minute or so if you, because you can't get any oxygen. One of the technical errors in the film, and I wasn't there when it happened, was that Bowman apparently holds his breath when he's exposed to vacuum. That's the worst possible thing. You should exhale, if anything. Maybe you should take a deep breath first and then breathe out.
the set for that emergency airlock was a tall set, tall, narrow set. And the camera was on the floor looking up. I had a harness and one piano wire, which looped up through that artificial door. And I had no helmet. I mean, it was just my head. I didn't want to do a lot of takes of this. I, I think I only did two, and I think on the second tape, I was actually, as I was hurtling down, able to grab that handle, which was supposed to close the hatch so that oxygen could then fill the chamber. If you had the wherewithal, you're being right. rocketed, <laughs> explode, a literal explosion, <laughs> ping-ponging around a padded. That'd keep your lungs from exploding, mm -hmm. and, you know, yeah. keep your pressure regulated. It's kind of uh, like the neutral buoyancy uh, bladders and fish mm. uh, they can go down to incredibly crushing depths and uh, send back up and be okay yeah speaking of bladders if dave's got a dry suit at this point he really is a steely-eyed missile man there's no way that that rocket backpack is not full of jet fuel anymore <laughs> in this sequence of course uh there's no way that i can go into space physically and open that uh, emergency hatch because in my rush to save my colleague, I have forgotten my helmet, my space helmet behind, which at least would seem a little uncharacteristic for someone who uh, can't be thrown too easily emotionally. But that there's a perfect example of uh, where I do lose it a little bit. The fact that this character who is so steady could forget his helmet. Talking about running out of, like, propellant and stuff? Yeah, yeah. I wonder if protocol, uh, when they're doing repairs, would be to stop the ship, set anchor? Maybe not, because you don't want to lose all that propulsion. Yeah. The ship itself only has a limited amount, so that's why the old tether and rope is the way to go. Uh-huh. <laughs> that's why NASA got rid of the uh, suicide backpack module. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't... They didn't want any more of these uh, 2001 episodes. Yes. They have a whole file thick. <laughs> redacted, redacted, but <laughs> we'll get that released in another 20 years yeah. probably. Suddenly the Discovery's moving a whole lot faster while the pod is drifting, and, and maybe that's relative motion, but it also could be that Hal is just hauling ass. Hal's kicked both of his number one enemies off the ship at this point and has stomped onto the gas and is peeling out of the parking lot. <laughs> <laughs> and a flutter of newspapers and splashing puddles. Yes. <laughs> Never to be seen again. This is Grand Theft Auto. But he has access to the library. He can watch Skidoo. He can do all those same things that they can't. Playing chess and, and what was it? Polygonos or not dominoes, but poly polymonos? Polynomials. Polynomials. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Monkeys in a barrel. Monkey. <laughs> yes. More fun. Which an anti-grav might be a little extra fun, you know. 
can make some really interesting uh, hooks and lattice. I don't know. Monkey talk. You could actually, because you could spin one monkey, and reach out and hook it because it would spin slowly. So you could hook them all in slow motion. That would be a fun way to play barrel monkeys. Could be cool. Uh, we need space jacks. Space jacks, that's brilliant. Yeah, I wonder if anybody has swallowed a jack oh, in space. That could be a hazard. I'm sure that's a banned object in any kind of mission. That, what about know. bouncy balls? Because bouncy balls would never stop bouncing, right? Yeah, they would. They'd... Eventually inertia would. Yeah. From Clavia Space. This is Brad. I'm Wes. Signing off. Thank you. Bye-bye.